Welcome to the Woodridge Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about what's happening in the life of our church, visit our website at www.woodridge.org. Enjoy the podcast. Hey, uh, turn in your Bibles to the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 20. Numbers 20, we're going to be taking the Lord's Supper in, toward the end of this service. And for those of you who are, are watching at home, we invite you even now to go get a cracker, a piece of bread, and some juice of some sort, and celebrate that with us at the very end of this morning's worship time. So, Numbers 20, and I want to ask you while you're looking there, what's the most thirsty you have ever been? Has any memory come to mind, maybe after working out or mowing the lawn or some football practice or something like that? What's the most thirsty you have ever been. When I was a senior in high school, I, I guess really after I graduated, our youth group from my church went to Glorieta, New Mexico to the Baptist Conference Center for Youth Camp. Glorieta is up in the Santa Fe Mountains, if you're familiar with it. And a friend and I got the idea of hiking up Mount Baldy one day. It was a Sunday. We had worshiped there that morning with about 2,000 other students. Uh, we'd had lunch together. And then this guy and I, we decided, well, there's nothing better to do. Let's, let's go up Old Baldy uh, this afternoon. Old Baldy isn't just what I see in the mirror every morning. It's a mountain peak that's about 10,300 feet in altitude. I'd never hiked a day in my life, okay? Didn't have any hiking boots, any trekking poles, didn't have a canteen, didn't have sunscreen, didn't have a map. Yeah, but I had me, you know, 17 years old, 10 foot tall and bulletproof, that kind of thing. And cell phones and disposable water bottles didn't exist in history at that point. And I can neither confirm nor deny the idea that there might have been some girls we wanted to hang with on the trail. The summit of Mount Baldy is about six mile hike from the trailhead at Glorietta. So it's about 12 miles up and back. You gain about 3,300 feet in altitude. There's some steep rocky sections on that final climb. You're on your all fours most of the time. It takes about seven hours up and back. So we started out, me and my buddy together. And after about 90 minutes, I was thinking, sure wish I had drink of water. But we kept going up in elevation and it got harder and I got thirstier. And at one point we were told by somebody else in the trail that there was water at the ranger station at the summit. Uh, that kept us going. The girls ended up hanging with others on the trail, but my friend and I were determined. We were going to go all the way to the top and we were getting thirstier by the minute. And finally, after about three and a half hours or about 300 yards from the summit, and that last 300 yards is a killer when you're tired and thirsty. You, you, you can't walk upright at that point. It's more like doing bear crawls in football practice, only you're doing them uphill. And so we're hunched over, we're fighting dehydration, and we're just a couple hundred yards from the top when somebody else coming down the mountain shouted to us, well, the ranger station's closed now, no more water for today. My friend and I gave each other the look that said, this was stupid. And we turned around and we started running downhill. Now, it took three and a half hours going uphill. It took us only about 90 minutes to get off that mountain. And at the trailhead where we first started, there were some trailers that some of the Glorietta employees uh, lived in uh, during their season there. I sprinted to the first trailer. Okay, it, I mean, for me, sprinting. Okay, you have to picture. But the first trailer, that had a water hose and a spigot. And I cranked on the water and I just held up the hose and, ah, you know, do this number. And my friend later said it looked like kind of like one of those cartoon characters, you know, when they're just kind of filling up. Uh, I, I just drank as fast as I could. That's the thirstiest I've ever been in my life. 
I don't know what thirst means to you, but this morning we're looking at a group of people that had an incredible thirst. We're looking at a, at a leader who has hit rock bottom, and we're talking about death and disappointment and disobedience. And good news, spoiler alert, we're talking about grace this morning. Lots of grace. So let's dive into God's word together in the book of Numbers chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. In the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zin, and they stayed at Kadesh. There, Miriam died and was buried. Now, there was no water for the community, and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses and said, if only we had died when our brothers died or fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this wilderness that we and our livestock should die here. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Death flows like a stream through this chapter. It starts with the death of Moses' sister, Miriam, and the chapter concludes with the death of Moses' brother, Aaron. And in between, Moses himself is old, and he doesn't have a whole lot longer to live either. Miriam, Miriam was always associated with water in the Bible. Whether it was the Nile River, you remember, her baby brother Moses floated down in a basket. She, he's found in the reeds by Pharaoh's daughter. You remember Miriam watched out for her baby brother and then offered to go get a nursemaid for the Egyptian princess, which turned out to be her own mother, Moses' own mother. So she was there for him even when he was born. Or when the Israelites crossed the Red Sea, in that miracle of miracles, Miriam grabbed a tambourine and began to sing, sing unto the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and rider, he is thrown into the sea. Hey, long before Don Henley and Phil Collins made a living singing and drumming, a woman, a Hebrew woman, had already beaten them to the punch. And in Jewish folklore, a legend, mind you, there was Miriam's well, as it became known, a rolling magical rock that accompanied the Jewish people on their wanderings through the wilderness. It was said that Miriam's well provided all the water a man could ever need, water for him and his family, and also for his cattle and his sheep. Miriam had achieved rock star status among the Israelites, but now Miriam dies in Kadesh, and she was buried there. And Jewish rabbinical scholars say that when she died, a strange thing happened. That magical well suddenly dried up, and the rock from which the water used to flow disappeared into all the other rocks in the wilderness. And so the people became fearful that they would now be left without water. And as they had done so before, they raised their complaints against, uh, you know who, Moses and Aaron. Maybe we need to give a little more biblical backstory here than just tell you the legend of that. See, between chapter 19 of Hebrews, uh, of, of Numbers, and chapter 20 of Numbers is a gap of about 37 to 38 years. Moses finds himself back at this place called Kadesh. As Yogi Berra might have said, you know, it's deja vu all over again. You, you, you might remember Kadesh from the book of Exodus, right? It's sort of where they started right after they left Egypt. They're back at Kadesh, and, and now there's a whole new generation 
that's there at Kadesh with Moses. The old generation that came with him into the wilderness is by and large almost all gone. There's a whole new generation that has come up. Last time Moses was in Kadesh, 38 years ago, give or take, 12 spies were sent into the promised land to get information and give a report about who and what the land contained. Kadesh Barnea is, is sort of the El Paso of the biblical lands. It's, it's the entrance border town to the land where the spies were sent in. The spies went up from Kadesh, uh, up from the, the south, from the Negev Desert, up into the hill country of Judea, even into Hebron, where the grapes were so big. And they brought back some of that fruit from the land. But when those 12 spies came back, 10 of them had a bad report. They, they were so fearful. They injected their fear into the lives, into the spiritual bloodstream of the rest of the nation. So fear became contagious among the people. And nobody wanted to go up and conquer the promised land except for Joshua and Caleb. So God said, fine. You don't want to trust me? Just take a 40-year lap around Mount Sinai. And since you don't want to go in, you won't go in. You'll die in the desert and your kids will go in. So here they are, back full circle, the Israelites. They've wandered now for close to 40 years, and the people are once again contending with Moses. And they spoke, saying, if only we had died with our brothers when our brothers died before the Lord. And look at the way their memory runs faulty. You know, oh, for the good old days when we had pomegranates and, and grapes and figs and oil. Oh, Really? You had all that, did you? I'm surprised Moses didn't ask him, are you out of your ever-loving mind? You didn't have that in Egypt. You were slaves. You, you, had the, you had the fare of slaves. You were working your fingers to the bone morning, noon, and night. Here's a good principle for us here, folks. Beloved, be careful when you long for the good old days because sin is crouching at your door. When you long for the good old days, I promise you, sin is just right around the corner the past is never as good as you remember. It's never as bad as you remember. It's just the past. Leave it behind and move out of Egypt. Sometimes we forget we've been set free by Christ, but in our mind, we're, we're still living in Egypt. And when Moses heard these complaints, he thought, I know this song. I've heard it before. The lyrics are the same, but it's a different choir. That's the song their parents used to sing to me so many years back. And now they're singing the same refrain. And I think by now when he hears, oh, if only we had died, you know, under his breath, he's probably saying, amen, what's keeping you? You know, what a thing for them to say. If only we had died like our brothers died. Now, brothers here, by the way, doesn't mean they're, they're immediate brothers in the family. It just means they're kinfolk, they're, they're ancestors. And they have their history a little off too, don't you think? It's, it's as if they're saying, you promised the promised land. You, you promised a land of abundance. That's, that's all the stories we've ever heard for, for generations. Well, look around Moses. I mean, this ain't it. Doesn't look like what you promised us. I think Moses in his mind is saying, that's because you're not there yet. This isn't the promised land. I mean, you're just not getting out of El Paso. There's still some desert to go. You, you haven't made it to the beautiful hill country of Concan or Lakey or Lost Maples. 
the promised land looks a whole lot better than El Paso. It's green and there's streams, there's a rain from heaven and there's the, there's the ocean that's on one side. It's a new generation, but it's the same old sin. I remember when I was in that youth group and I wanted to differentiate, you know, between my generation and the one previous, you know, we, we knew what we were doing, right? I thought my parents were so strict, so, so out of touch, you know, fuddy-duddies and fogies. And we're the new generation. We're going to be different, you know. We're going to change the world. We're going to do it right. But every generation says and thinks that, don't they? Oh, we're not like the old folks back there. We don't fall into the same things that they do. It's a new choir, but it's the same old song. Nothing new under the sun. See, the problem becomes when we as believers, we say we're trusting in the Lord to provide, but then when we don't get what we want, when we want it, we're saying God isn't taking care of us. And effectively, if you're a complaining believer, that's the message you're sending. Your God isn't doing a good job of taking care of you. The real test of spiritual maturity isn't how loud you can sing a song in this room, but how you react when you hit rock bottom outside of this room. How you respond when you get thirsty, when the check isn't on time, when your spouse says they want to follow their heart, and that involves leaving you. When the doctor looks at your chart at the foot of the bed and just shakes her head. When your child says, I don't want to go to church anymore. I don't believe that stuff anyway. Then what? You're, you're close to rock bottom. Let's look at the next verses. Beginning in verse 6, Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of meeting and fell face down. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses, take the staff and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes and it will pour out its water. So why do Moses and Aaron go to the tent of meeting? Well, that's, that's where the Lord hangs out. That's where God's presence can be experienced. And so they fell on their faces and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. They, they got down on their knees before the Lord in humility. Here's the principle. When people get in your face, you get down on your face before the Lord. That's, that's the proper response. That's the wise response. People get up in your grill and they, they complain against you. The easy thing to do, of course, is, is push back. Get defensive. Give them a dose of what they gave you. But the smartest thing to do is drop to your knees in prayer, in humility. Because if you're the leader of a business or a church, an organization, it's, it's, it's not a question of if, is it? It's a question of when the people begin to complain about you. And your leadership. See what they're saying here to, to Moses and Aaron. Why did you bring us into this wilderness? I thought God was leading them all that time. Why did you bring us to this terrible place? It's your fault. And Moses realizes if he's going to be an effective leader, he's got to intercede for. He's got to pray for those he's leading. And in order to do that, he's got to forgive them for what they're saying about him. If you're not willing to forgive God's people, you can't lead them. And that's why he goes to the tent of meeting, for God to work on his heart. 
When they're up in your face, you get down on your face before the Lord. And then as Moses and Aaron are praying, the glory of the Lord appeared and the, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the rod. Now, now Moses might be thinking, yeah, yeah, take the rod. <laughs> you don't know what I'd like to do with this rod here. But God says, take the rod, you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together and speak to the rock before their eyes. Catch this, 38 years before this, same place, same problem, no water. Older generation is there. They're complaining. They want water. The Lord says, Moses, take your rock, uh, take your rod and strike the rock. Hit the water and it will come out. Now, 38 years later, he's saying, Moses, take your rod and don't hit the rock. Don't strike the rock. Just speak to the rock. So what does Moses do? Look at verse 9. Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? And then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. So, so Moses had initially sought God's face when he heard the people complaining and he received instructions from God. But instead of speaking to the rock, he speaks to the people. He launches into an impromptu speech to them and then he strikes the rock. It's a hard passage to read because you realize here that there's, there's a faithful servant of God here who is hitting rock bottom. Is there any way to justify his actions? Well, the people were whining, okay. He was physically tired. He was old. He, he was likely still grieving the death of his sister probably wondering about his, his own future as he could see that he and Aaron were probably not far behind her. Moses couldn't fail to appreciate Miriam's role in his life. You know, in a way, her presence framed his life. She was guarding him at birth, and then she worshiped and celebrated with him at the crossing of the Red Sea. And, and when she died, he may well have felt that he had lost someone who had been a champion to him, someone who had always been there in his corner. As we age, we begin to lose so many friends, don't we? On whose shoulders we once stood. And one of the stages of grief and loss is anger. Hey, I get it. I, I get Moses' anger. But it's not an excuse for disobeying God. And did you catch his bitter words to a thirsty Israel? Listen, you rebels. Yeah, they, they were rebellious. There's no doubt about it. But Moses is now putting himself in the place of judge to make that declaration in a place that only God can reside as the judge. Listen, you rebels. Shall we get water for you out of this rock? What's this we business, Moses? You got a mouse in your pocket or something? You didn't do it the first time, dude. You're not going to do it the second time either. 
But by saying we, now Moses has set himself up as equal to God, as their deliverer. Again, a role that only the holy God could fulfill. Moses, who's supposed to show the people the one true holy God, is instead putting the spotlight on himself as their holy deliverer and judge. Only he's not that holy, is he? And let's go a little deeper into the idea of the rock. In the, in the first encounter with the rock, 38 years ago, in Exodus 17, it was clear that the rock represented God himself. Over and over in the Old Testament, God is referred to as a rock and a refuge for his people. I think when we think of God as our rock today, we think of him as our, our stability, our, our foundation, you know, the, the bedrock on which we can build our lives. And that's true but if that's all we understand, I think we miss the most important part of God as our rock. Back then in Exodus 17, at that first gathering in Kadesh, the Lord allowed himself to be put on trial. He was standing before Israel instead of putting them on trial for their complaining. In that awesome picture of grace as the rock, the Lord was willing to be struck himself instead of striking his rebellious people so that they might receive life-giving water. Does that sound like anybody you know? Over in 1 Corinthians 10.4, Paul says that the rock that was struck, the rock they drank from was Christ himself. And this, this, friend, this is why Moses' sin was so grievous. I mean, we might ask ourselves, well, what's the big deal? Speak to it, hit it, or whatever. They got the, rock, the water they needed, right? What, what's, what's the big deal? Here's why Moses' sin was so grievous. It's one thing to strike God when he instructs, instructs you to do so. It's quite another to strike him twice on your own authority. See, when Moses struck the rock with his rod, this time it's nothing short of a direct assault on God himself. And all this leaves no doubt about his true intentions. Moses really wants to let the people continue to suffer as if God were impotent, as if God were not all powerful, as if God were not all merciful, as if God could not or provide, would not provide for his people. That's the sacrilege of which God spoke and the evidence that Moses had grown weary and callous in his own heart. His heart was hardening against God's people and against God himself as he turned inward on himself toward the end of his life. And he has usurped the glory of God by taking personal credit for supplying the Israelites with water. In his anger, he has disobeyed God and the consequences have crushed his expectations. No promised land for you, Moses. And it's left him at rock bottom. You ever been there? Over in Numbers 12, 3, it, it does say that Moses was the most humble man on the face of the earth. But even the most humble person can hit rock bottom. The line between worship and idolatry is incredibly thin. It is absolutely impossible to obey God and be God at the same time. You can't do both. So choose. Moses has chosen 
to disobey God and in effect be his own God. He wants to do God's work his way and not God's way. You, you ever do that? Oh, man, let me count the ways. Guilty. I, thanks, Lord. I, I got this. I, I, I'll give you a call if I need you. But I, I'm good. Thanks. That could be the story of my life. Moses and Aaron missed an opportunity to sanctify God's name in public when they hit the rock instead of speaking to it. It would have been a great lesson to the people to see how even a rock is obedient to God's word. So Moses has a little of all this going on. There's grief, there's stress, unhappy people around him, unmet physical needs, unfulfilled expectations, but ultimately he sins because he chooses to do so. And the consequence is he doesn't get to enter the promised land. You say, well, that's a, that's a shame that he didn't get in. And it, and it is a shame. This isn't a picture, though, of a man losing his salvation. You and I can't commit the sin that would cause God to abandon us once he saved us. But it does show that no matter how old you get, there's still room for growth. In this life, you and I will never arrive to a place where we don't need God anymore. You can still blow it at an old age. Just ask Mo. We wanna make sure that we finish well. That's the goal as we grow older in the Lord, to make it all the way to the summit of the mountain and not turn back. There's a story that shows up in all three of the synoptic gospels about Jesus taking Peter, James, and John with him on a hike. They go up a mountain. I don't know if they had canteens and maps, but they did have the living water, and he was leading the way, so I think they were okay. And there on that, on that journey, they see Jesus transformed. His clothes look radiant. They're, they're dazzling white. We call this story in the New Testament the Mount of Transfiguration. And it says that there were two other people with Jesus, Elijah and Moses. Doesn't say how they knew it was Elijah and Moses. They, they just knew. The Holy Spirit must have revealed it to them. All three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record these details. And where are they when this happens? Well, the precise Location of the mountain's not certain, but there's no doubt they are in the region of Galilee. And, and they're in the promised land. So, so get this. So though Moses, because he tries to get to the promised land in his own strength, he doesn't get to go in. But here the Lord Jesus brings Moses into the promised land by grace, by the very hand of God, not by Moses doing. Moses does eventually make it to the promised land in his glorified state. After his death, he's brought in. And, and what was he found doing when he got to the promised land? The scriptures in the New Testament say he was talking with Jesus. He's finally speaking to the rock. We hope you have enjoyed the podcast. For more information about our church, visit www.woodridge.org.